Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The book of Numbers, chapter 21, our text will be verses 1 to 9. This is a very familiar account, one that we had just read in our opening passage. This is when the Israelites have once again complained unto the Lord, and so he sends fiery serpents into the camp to judge his people, to chastise them because of their lack of trust in him. They have found themselves once again under the judgment of God. Here the Lord has done great things for them thus far. And we'll see that in the beginning here of chapter 21. But it seems as if all the great things that God does for them, all the great mercies that God shows to them, the great love that he extends to them, is never satisfying to the people. And just as soon as something else comes about, they immediately tend to forget anything beforehand and only focus on the situation at hand and then begin to doubt, begin to complain, begin to murmur against the Lord and to once again desire to go back to Egypt. This is once again an instance in which we have Israel rebelling against the Lord their God. Beforehand, as we went over last Wednesday, Israel had done this ten times. So this tenth time, the Lord says, I have sworn in my wrath, you will not enter into my rest. So the judgment is given. He says to them, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that you were spying out the land, and you will fall in this desert. Your corpses will fall in this desert. And he will take in the next generation. So even after all that, they've been through that. And remember what happened. They, Upon hearing this, they say to Moses, well, let us go up then and we'll go take the land. And Moses said, why why are you rebelling again? Don't go up. He's not going with you. So the ark didn't go. Moses didn't go. The people went up. And, of course, they were destroyed and they were chased out by the Canaanites because God was not with them. So after all of that, here we are again. Now, remember that this is indeed showing us of the depravity of man and showing us really the grace of God in preserving his people. Because if it weren't for the grace of God to preserve us, we would immediately fall away because that is the natural inclination of man to doubt and to turn the other way. That's one reason why we emphasize so much about the perseverance of the saints being a blessing from God. It is a blessing from God because this, for this very fact here, that if it were not for God preserving us in His hand, we would immediately fall away. That's why when it comes to the idea of losing your salvation, it makes no sense whatsoever. The fact that you continue to believe is not in your own power that you continue to believe. It's because God is continuing you to believe because he's preserving his people. That is in a great grace of God, one that we should 
come to appreciate even more, especially when we see passages like this, because they're doing it again. Now, granted, passages like this, as we've been going over, are for our instruction, what to guard against. And in every instance, it's always unbelief, doubting the Lord in one way or another and seeking to go their own way. Well, here, as the Lord sends judgment upon them, there's an interesting way in which the Lord pardons them, but He pardons them in such a way where they have to trust in Him if they are to live. Have to. And there's a great lesson there for the people indeed. This is the very thing that they have to reflect upon is, is this, this bronze serpent that we'll look at here in just a moment. But in order to live, they must look upon it. Have to. And so the Lord is developing trust in the people and really pushing them even more so to trust through this whole ordeal. And of course... Uh, without question, this is indeed picturing the great work of our Lord Jesus as this is, this is a symbol, a uh, picture, this is a type of what is to come in Christ himself. There are many correlations here. Uh, we'll look at a few of them, of course, but uh, I pray that as we work our way through this passage that we'll see the great work that Christ has done on behalf of his people, what he has delivered us from and looking unto him with eyes of faith. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Numbers chapter 21, reading verses 1 to 9. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the scripture. Verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in, in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you, will, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. 
We thank you that it indeed points us to the work of our Lord Jesus and the great healing that we have received by his offering, by him being lifted up. Uh, thank you, Father, for all that this passage teaches us. We pray that the Spirit of God would apply it to our hearts, give us greater understanding, that we may be even more thankful for all that you are and all that you do on behalf of your people. Father, thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here's the situation. Israel has already been chastised by the Lord a number of times. Not only in the time in which they are brought out of Egypt and they make the golden calf, but in Korah's rebellion, uh, several thousand of them fell because of that. The earth actually opened up and just swallowed them up. They went, in, they went alive into Sheol, is what the text says. They have disobeyed the Lord in the time in which he says to go out and gather the manna, but don't gather the manna, uh, or don't gather so much that you can't eat it for that night. Well, they do that anyway. They gather on the Sabbath. They do all kinds of things continually. That tenth time, the Lord says, okay, you're not entering into my rest. You will die in this wilderness, and I will take your children in. So they continue to wander by this time, Miriam has died, Aaron has died, and the children of Israel have not apparently learned much of anything throughout this period of time. <clears throat> this Canaanite king has heard that Israel is coming this way, and so he fights against them, and he captures many of them. And so they pray unto the Lord Deliver them into our hands. This, this is the prayer that, that the Lord says, or the Lord hears and responds to. Deliver them into our hands. We'll utterly destroy them. That's actually what they were supposed to have done anyway. Once they were to enter into the promised land, they were to, to take Jericho, they were, they were, or the, they were to take many of these cities. But they failed to do that. And so here... They pray unto the Lord and say, if you give them into our hand, we will utterly destroy them in their cities. And so they do. The Lord gave the Canaanites into the hand of his people, delivered them up, and they were utterly destroyed, it says, and their cities. And so they set out from this place. Now they are traveling further in. Now the area in which they are going, because the land of Edom, they are going around... It is a barren desert. There's hardly any food. And so what happens? They begin to get impatient, as the text tells us, which means the soul of the people was discouraged, is what it means. They began to be discouraged because they're looking around. There's no food here. We're tired of eating this manna. And where's the water? Now, prior to this, the Lord has provided water. He has provided quail. He has provided manna. He provided these things for his people, intending to take them into the land of promise, the land which flows with milk and honey. They reject that, and so they are staying on the manna for the most part. They're having to survive off of this, and this is a grace of God providing for them, even in spite of their rebellion. But because they're in this barren place, 
They became impatient. They became discouraged because of the journey. And they speak against the Lord, their God. They don't just speak against Moses. You know, we could look and say, you know, Moses, where exactly are you taking us? You know, we could, we could picture that in our heads to say, Moses, are you sure you're taking us the right way? But the fact of the matter is, they knew that this is the right way to go because it's not just Moses out there leading. It is the Lord leading. The Lord is the one leading them around here. The pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. They're following him, and so they know that this is the way in which the Lord is leading them. Moses is out front leading the people the way the Lord has led them to go. And so they begin to speak against the Lord again. Here's his covenant people. Once again, murmuring and complaining, never satisfied with anything that God has done for them thus far. And then they begin to not only to, to point their anger towards the Lord and their lack of trust, but now it's Moses again as well. He's, Moses is in the hot seat once again. There is no food. There is no water. We loathe. This miserable food. There is no gratefulness in their hearts whatsoever here. And because of that lack of being satisfied in what the Lord has provided, they begin to distrust. They begin to question God's goodness because that's basically what they're doing. Why are you brought, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? There's no trust. Now, how many times has the Lord shown this people his love for them his mercy with and you think of the mercy that god has shown as many times as they've rebelled thus far he has not utterly wiped them out instead of korah and the couple of thousand that were following korah being swallowed up and going alive into sheol he could have allowed the multitude he didn't do that god has shown such great mercy and the provision that God has shown, continually providing everything that His people needs in order to continue to exist. Not only the breath that is in their lungs, but providing them food, providing them water, and doing it by a miracle. Speak to the rock, outflows water. They wake up, there's manna on the ground, provided by the Lord. These are miraculous ways in which the Lord has demonstrated His his presence with them, His continued presence with them, and they are not satisfied at all. You know, man's greatest problem is one, besides not being satisfied, is not trusting in the Lord. It's always been the problem. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. Their lack of trust led them into rebellion. That is always man's problem with, with the Lord is, is a lack of trust, a lack of belief, a lack of having confidence in the Lord. Focusing on themselves, focusing on what they don't have. That's how we, we feed that, that lack of being satisfied in the Lord because instead of looking and seeing, God, you have provided this for me, you have provided this. You continue to allow us to live. We have food. We have, we have clothing. We have shelter. We have jobs. We have, we have a home. 
We have all kinds of things that you have provided for us. Even greater blessings consider the many things that we have that we probably don't even need. And yet, I'm not satisfied because I'm only focused on what I don't have. Because I don't have this in my life, Lord, there's something wrong with you for not providing it to us. It's basically what happened in the beginning, wasn't it? The enemy plants it in their minds that he's holding back from you. Something else that he knows that if you were to take of it, it would make you like him. So there's this idea of uh, the, the Lord's character being called into question that the Lord is keeping them from something good, from a great experience or whatever the case may have been. However they thought of it when Satan began to tempt. And so their lack of being satisfied leads them to doubt, leads them to distrust, leads them to complain, leads them to speak against the Lord. Again. And we look at that and, and again, it's, it's so easy to get so caught up in, in the whole account itself and to look and to see, I mean, how amazing would it have been for us to be able to see what they saw? How amazing to, for God to have manifested Himself in such a way that it was clear without question that he was in their midst by the miraculous ways in which the Lord had provided for them. We look at that and we say, love to have seen that. I would love to know what manna tasted like. I would have loved to have seen the, the water just come out of the rock because Moses spoke to it by the power of the Lord. But if you just stop for a minute... And think how amazing it would have been to have seen all those things. How amazing, how astonishing. Wow. We have this wow factor when we look at passages like this. And then we move into, I can't believe that they still would do what they are doing. But if you just take a moment and look in your own life. And the things in which you complain most about to the Lord that you don't have. Rather than looking and seeing what God has given. And when we can stop for a minute and just begin to consider that, then we can see, yes, I understand why they would have went that way and done the things that they did because I do it too. We're not satisfied. We're not satisfied knowing. Here's, here's the big one. We're not satisfied knowing that the love of God was shown to us in such a mighty way that through the death of His Son that we are able to come into His presence to be redeemed and He's extended that love and He's demonstrated that love and then we look at Him at times and we say, why don't you love me? We have the great privilege really, we look, don't really look at it as a privilege considering the, things, the way things are. We have a great privilege of living here in this nation. And it is a privilege. Think of all the things that you have that many people don't have. 
We have, we have cars and we have TVs and we have all kinds of channels to entertain us all the time. We have books uh, available to us at, at just the press of a button. We have all kinds of things. And still, we only look at the things that we don't have. And most of the time, the things that we don't have are usually worldly things anyway. We're not satisfied with the people that are in our lives that God has graced us with. Have you considered that? I mean, if you think about, you know, the, the things of the world and, and all of the, the material things and all of that, but, but when you look at the, the, the even greater blessing of having people in your life who love you, who care for you, who, who come alongside you, people that you can vent to, people that you can be counseled from. You, you have so many blessings through the people of God, and we know this, that it is often through the people of God that God is showing you His care and His love through others that God has placed in your life. And still, we're not satisfied. Because there's still something that we're lacking whatever it may be individually for each one of us. And when we don't have it, and we're only focused upon it, if we allow that to fester within our hearts, then we will indeed commit this to an even greater degree. You have to stop and remember, God has done so much for me that it doesn't matter what I lack, I know what I have. And the greatest gift is having Him. Above all else, having Him. For the people of Israel, that wasn't the case. They sinned greatly before the Lord here, once again. And so, the Lord sends judgment again. So here's what He does. He sends fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So out here in this desert in the camp, he sends fiery serpents. These perhaps, the, the, speaking of fiery, um, theologians are differing on it, whether or not it means because of their bite and the pain that is caused by their bite, because of the redness that it causes, because of the heat that it causes. There's a variety of uh, ideas there as to why they're called fiery serpents. Poisonous, obviously. The bite is very painful. So the Lord sends these creatures into the camp in order to judge His people. Serpents. Snakes. Most of the time, anytime we see a snake, we're automatically fearful. At least I am. Some people, maybe not. But imagine a whole bunch of them coming into the camp. And imagine that a whole bunch of them have come in the camp, not because they're just passing through and you just happen to be in the way, but they're coming into the camp because the Lord whom you rebelled against has sent them into the camp. And so there's a guarantee when the Lord sends them into the camp, this isn't just to get our hearts racing a little bit as we watch them pass by. This is for the intention of biting you. 
and many dying as a result of it. <clears throat> so once they come to themselves again because of this judgment that God has put into their midst, then they come to Moses and they say, we have sinned greatly. Intercede for us. Now, you know, we talked about before about the power of intercessory prayer. The benefit of intercessory prayer. Bringing people up before the Lord whom themselves probably don't have faith, depending on who we're praying for. And how God honors prayer. And how we look at prayer as being the means by which God brings to pass the end. His purpose. His will. So Moses prays on behalf of the people. And so... The Lord has stopped the, the, the plague in one sense. Here's what is necessary for the people to be healed of this. The Lord is going to pardon them, but only in this way. Moses intercedes, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. So Moses makes a bronze serpent. A bronze serpent, a brazen serpent, so that it's similar to the color, perhaps, of what these snakes were, depending if they had a, a reddish tint to them, or because of the heat, that, uh, because of the pain of the bite and the heat and the redness, Again, there's, there's a variety of ideas there. But in any event, they're told to make a serpent of bronze, set it on a pole, and hold it in somewhere in the camp to where anyone who is bitten, they have, if they want to be healed, they have to look at it. They have to gaze upon it. And for many, the, the intention here is that they have to look upon it, not just to look at a, a bronze snake as if the, snake had, the brazen snake had some kind of a healing power to it. That's, that's a pagan idea. That's why pagans have, have thought of the snake in the way that they have when it comes to healing and health and all of that. There's nothing in this brazen uh, snake, serpent, the standard, that had any healing power whatsoever. They had to look on it and believe the word of God. That if they did, according to the word of the Lord, that they would be healed. So it was an act of faith. They had to look upon it. <clears throat> you think of this, that... This, this reception that they received of help, as one theologian says, was made to depend upon the faith of the people. If they wanted the help and they received the help, they had to exercise faith in trusting that God said, if we look upon this, we'll be healed. So they had to trust in the word of the Lord if they wanted to be healed. So there was a great lesson there for the people of God in this whole ordeal that they are being made to trust God in the sense of demonstrating once again that He is 
trustworthy, and it has to take an event like this to demonstrate it again. If you want to live, believe what I said. If you don't, then you can die. So they were being forced to have to trust God if they wanted to live. This was the only way. There was no other way. Now, <clears throat> the lesson there is to look with faith. The lesson there is to trust the people being made to trust because they've been lacking trust. The Lord's brought us out here. We're going to die. Well, here's an event right here that if you don't believe what he says, you are going to die. So is he trustworthy? You looked upon it. You've lived. You've been healed. So what he said was true. Now, the link here, as some Old Testament scholars were writing about, the link between the serpents themselves and the bronze serpent was this. One theologian says it was intended to look upon the, the brazen serpent. It was intended as a figurative representation of the poisonous serpents rendered harmless by the mercy of God. Here's this serpent, the very thing that is tormenting them. It is a visible reminder of their rebellion. But here's this serpent that if they look upon the very that look upon the image of the very thing that is tormenting them, that they'll be healed. And so the lesson as these ones are pointing out is that the serpents are rendered harmless by the mercy of God. If you're bitten, you're not going to die, and you're not going to die because of the power of God. By the mercy of God, He is not allowing you to die if you look upon the serpent, the bronze serpent, and believe. So the very things that are there as a judgment of God is rendered harmless by the Lord in an act of mercy. Now, the Jews <clears throat> did view this uh, this standard with the bronze serpent as a symbol of salvation. Uh, interestingly enough, it ended up being a snare to them later on under the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah ended up having this, this bronze serpent destroyed because the people kept burning incense to it and gave it a name. Again, the hearts of the people worshiping a creation rather than the creator. That ended up happening in the days of Hezekiah. <clears throat> so looking at this, this is, this is a symbol of salvation as the Jews had written uh, in some of their own writings. Now Luther, Luther looked at, at this bronze serpent and the correlation in three particular ways. The correlation to Christ, the correlation um, that he indeed wrote about, was this, that the, the standard itself, with the bronze serpent on it, was an open showing, a triumphal exhibition of the poisonous serpents as put to death in the image. 
an open showing of the poisonous serpents as put to death in the image. Because of that image and looking upon that image, the poisonous serpents were rendered harmless, as if dead. They had no power any longer when you looked upon the brazen serpent. Luther correlates that of the lifting up of Christ and triumphing over all the forces of darkness. The very fact of Christ himself being lifted up, becoming a curse, becoming, a, uh, becoming the object of God's wrath as God had imputed to him sin. Now, I know we know this, but it is important to just be reminded of this, is that Christ did not become a sinful man on the cross. He did not become a sinner on the cross. Sin was credited to him, imputed to him, in the sense of he's now treated as if he were. But at no point did he become a sinner. Just a little footnote there. We need to be reminded of that. Uh, there are many who make, make the wrong judgment when it comes to he became sin. The idea of he became sin. He became the curse of sin. He became an object of God's wrath because of sin. All of that is absolutely true, but he did not become a sinner on the cross. But him being lifted up and the sin of his people being, uh, the, the wrath towards the sin of his people being poured out upon him, that through his offering, through his atonement, through his resurrection, through his completed work, Satan is rendered harmless, according to the writer of Hebrews. According to Paul, that he made an open showing of all the principalities and powers when he rose again from the dead. He made a spectacle of them. He rendered them all harmless. All the powers of evil, those that held the power of death, as the writer of Hebrews says, has now been made harmless in Christ. He says that we look to Christ as they had to look upon the bronze serpent, believing the word of the Lord. We look upon Christ, lifted up Christ and him crucified, to be delivered not from the bite of a serpent, a fiery serpent. Luther says, but to be delivered from the bite of the old serpent, from sin and death and hell. He says this, the third way that there's the correlation there, is that the brazen serpent had the form of a real serpent without any poison and was harmless. God sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus, in the form of sinful man, yet without sin. So there's some correlations that Luther has made there with the brazen serpent and Christ himself. <clears throat> now there's some things to think about, some things to ponder on. And a lot of these things we can look at and say, absolutely. We can understand that, that because of the brazen serpent, it rendered all of the rest of them harmless because they look to it and they're healed. We can, we can see that. We can see that that the sting of death is taken away because of looking upon Christ with faith and believing the word of the Lord. We can see that. We can see how the form of the serpent was just like the real ones, in the sense, yet without 
the poison. We can see Christ coming. The only difference here is, is that Christ didn't come as just an image. He came as an actual man, yet without sin. Jesus himself compares what he does to this bronze serpent back in John. His work. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. It's the same concept. This was a type. Christ is the antitype, but it's the same lesson. Look and believe. Believe the word of the Lord. They had to look to receive this temporary healing, if you will, because of a bite of a snake. But it's all pointing to the greater reality that was in Christ himself. This is one of the great images, pictures of the Old Testament. One of the great types of the Old Testament pointing directly to Christ. That he who came in the flesh, God the Son, lifted up from the ground... Lifted up, rejected by men, God's wrath poured out upon him. And the, the testimony of Scripture is, look unto Christ and believe. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's, that's, that's the only way. Just as this was the only way then in order to be healed, this is the only way that you may be healed spiritually and come into God's favor once again. We must come His way, and the only way is His Son. The only way that they could be healed then and be pardoned by the Lord was to come His way, all pointing to this greater reality that is in Christ Jesus. There are so many of these instances in the Old Testament in which we see that, that this particular uh, event or this particular person or this office or, or this sacrifice or, or whatever is all pointing to Christ, and this is one of those instances. Now, if you look back at this, the people are dissatisfied. The people are complaining, questioning the goodness of God. And so the Lord, in, in one sense, is, is, is giving them this, this great lesson of His mercy throughout this whole ordeal. And we ourselves are no different living on this side of the cross. We are unsatisfied we, we often complain, we often murmur, and instead of being so grateful for the mercy of God that was shown to us in the work of our Lord Jesus and the great love that was extended there that is in plain view, God demonstrated His love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us even when we were enemies. This mercy of God was presented and this mercy of God was shown to the world. We still look at Him and say, well, you're just keeping me from this good thing that I need over here. Or, I can't understand why you would do things this way. You know how I felt about this or how I felt about that. You didn't even consider my feelings. <laughs> that is one of the most ridiculous things, though, isn't it? How the Lord doesn't consider our feelings. The Lord considers His glory. The Lord is passionate about His glory and the Lord is passionate about His will and the Lord is passionate about bringing, bringing about the good out of His people through a variety of ways. So often the Lord doesn't care about our feelings in the sense of 
that we would rather this not happen, but the Lord is saying this must happen in order for this to happen. We don't look at the outcome of things. We don't look, and, and that's, why, that's why the Apostle Paul says numerous times to, to, or actually he says, we exult in our tribulations. We rejoice in them. Why? Not because of the pain that is there. We would rather have not went through it. And that's where the Lord didn't consider our feelings. But it's the outcome of the situation that brings about proven character and proven character hope and hope that does not disappoint. There are so many things in which the Lord is doing and the Lord is bringing about and the Lord is showing us and the Lord is bringing about, uh, showing us His great care and His provision every single day. And it's still not good enough of something else that we look and we see that we don't have. And we keep striving for it. We keep striving for the very thing that we don't have. And it very well can be, as we've said before, that maybe the Lord isn't allowing you to have whatever it is because you've made it a God. You've made it an idol. So why is He going to give it to you when you care so much about it that you're going to question His goodness? It's like a child. A child complaining and complaining and wants this toy over here. And finally you just say, okay, here's the toy. Now the child is really nice to you. Now starts to behave. That was a very selfish and self-centered act that the child had just done. But you feel good about it because now they're happy. It's not how it works. Instead of giving in like we often do as parents, the Lord withholds the very thing that will cause us an even, even greater pain or cause us to stray even further, whatever the case is. Beloved, we must be satisfied in the only real thing that is to be satisfied in, which is Him. Remember these things that we are just passing through. We hear that a lot. We, we even take that for granted, you know, that we're just passing through. This isn't our home. Eventually it will be when it's redeemed. But we put so much emphasis on the very things of this world. If, if you knew, let's say we had some great revelation and you knew the Lord was coming back tonight. Would you be excited? Or would you say, there's still other things I would love to do. I don't want to go yet. Because there's still this and there's still that. Now, if you just begin to think about that, which... Most likely, something immediately has hit your mind because of what emphasis that we put on things of this world. That's the problem. We cherish other things more than what we cherish the Lord. And that's most likely why the Lord don't allow us to have it. Because there's a great lesson there where He says, trust in Me. When He says, cherish Me. When He says, have confidence in Me. When he says, believe me. When he says, go my way, not this way. 
you know, we look at sometimes and, and we see, we, we think maybe, well, can I really be satisfied? Um, you know, I, I just, I think this and I think that, and well, they have that. Why don't I have that or whatever? Recognize this, that because of the Spirit of God who dwells within you, yes, you can absolutely be satisfied in the very things that the Lord has allowed you in this life right now. You can absolutely be satisfied because your satisfaction is in Him. Lord, you have extended such love to me that I lack no love. You've extended such grace to me. How can I not be appreciative? You've extended eternal life to me so that I can live with you forever and ever. What then can hold me here that I wouldn't want to go? This is where the Apostle Paul says those very known and famous words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me in this context. The context of being satisfied. He says in Philippians about being content. <clears throat> in Philippians chapter 4, we'll jump in here, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with, you, with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know how you can be content? You can be content by trusting in the Lord and the Lord providing that strength for you to be content. This is, um, obviously, this isn't one of those verses that you can just post up anywhere and apply any particular meaning to it, as is often done. This is about your contentment. In Christ. This is about being content in Him and content with whatever that He has granted you in this life. And at the time that Paul is writing this, this is one of the prison epistles. Paul is chained to a guard in a dungeon and he is penning this letter. And actually the, the whole letter of Philippians is known as the book of joy. How can he be so joyous? How can he be so, his heart be lifted up to, to rejoice before the Lord as he does throughout that letter? Because he learned to be content. Because his contentment was in him. His satisfaction was in Christ. Let us be content with Christ. Be satisfied in him. Look to him. Believe him. And have confidence in that where he is leading, this is the right path. This is the right way. And that he will bring us to our intended end. Whatever the outcome may be, if we are trusting and following the Lord, it will be the right place. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again.
for this portion of your word. Thank you that it reminds us of the great work of our Lord Jesus, that he was lifted up from the earth, that you don't require sacrifices, you don't require good deeds, you don't require works of righteousness at all. You tell us to look to him and believe. And by trusting in him with saving faith, you apply these great blessings to us through your son. Not just material things, but the great blessing of our salvation, being called by you, being loved by you. Thank you for these things. Well, Father, let us see just how rich that we are in Christ because of these blessings. How blessed that we truly are. Remind us of that. Remind us, Lord, uh, of, of our need to be trusting because you have demonstrated yourself to be trustworthy. Father, do a mighty work within us. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. Thank you again for this portion of your word. Thank you for your only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the spirit of God that you have sent to us that helps us to carry out the very things that we find within your word by his power and his strength. To be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.